Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Today's guest, Bob Harrow, is a really close friend of mine, but that's not the story. The story is he invented, literally invented a sport called BMX Freestyle, and we affectionately call him, as the industry does, the Tony Hawk of BMX Freestyle. 40 years ago, Bob went on the road, barnstorming with a bunch of his friends in a van, and they went all across the country pitching the sport of BMX Freestyle and doing shows wherever they could. Parking lots, streets, back lots, whatever it took. And literally, that's how the sport was born. And the cool part here, and there are a bunch of cool parts, uh, in 1981, shortly after that barnstorming tour, Bob got a call from Steven Spielberg's production company. They were about to get shooting on E.T., the extraterrestrial. And everybody who listens to this will remember that awesome BMX scene. Bob Harrow is in that scene, and he's the one with the sort of mask on his face, and he's going to explain that to us in a little bit. From there, Bob went on to do a number of things, including starting a design shop. It's been going for over 40 years, Haro Design. That later became Haro Bikes. He literally started a bike manufacturing company. He hired a general manager, Jim Ford, back then, and they grew the brand together. Bob on the design side, the bikes, the look, the feel, the branding, and Jim on the actual business side, distribution, supply chain, and then dealing with the retailers across the country. Several years later, they sold that company to the U.S. distributor, West Coast Cycles. And in that process of selling the Harrow Bike Company, Bob was also asked to convey the rights to his name, Harrow. You're going to hear a little bit more about that as well. Once the company was sold, Bob took back a contract, but really then jump-started Harrow Design. And he's worked with brands across motorcycle and the motorsports areas like Yamaha, Kawasaki, Honda, and a whole bunch of others. There's an Olympic thread to this story. In 2008, BMX Racing debuted in Beijing, China. Nike back then was the Olympic kit supplier. And Nike's group reached out directly to Bob. And in an homage to Bob Haro, Bob was instrumental in designing the racing kits or uniform for the BMX racers. Really interesting. And then the Olympic thread continues in 2012. Danny Boyle, the director of Slumdog Millionaire, was the producer and director of all things Olympic. And he tapped Bob to come to London for several weeks and work on the choreography of the closing ceremony. And Olympic Games continues. BMX Freestyle, literally the sport Bob invented 40 years ago, debuts later this summer in Tokyo 2020 slash 21 in July. Bob, it's an amazing story. Your creativity, your vision 
um, and your persistence are all hallmarks of what you've been able to accomplish. Can't thank you enough for being here. Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for uh, the invitation. You have an esteemed guest list, and it's nice to be part of that. Thank you, sir. Well, happy to have you be a part of it. So, I mean, this is the best boss ever. You've literally, I mean, and figuratively, actually never really had a boss per se, but you've worked with a lot of folks, customers. You you tapped Jim Ford to run your company. Share with us a little bit about what your takeaways are of those people that you might refer to as the best boss or, you know, most significant influencer you've had. Well, yeah, you're right about that. I think from my teenage years to currently, I've been self-employed and that's kind of all I know. I did have in kind of my formidable years as a teenager, I worked for a magazine in Los Angeles. So I'm living in San Diego. I'm a kid still in high school. I'm, I'm learning to illustrate. I was highly influenced by Mad Magazine at the time. I used to copy and I kind of copy illustrations from artists that I liked. And that's kind of where I initially developed my style. And I was drawing, I was racing motorcycles. I was riding BMX bikes. And uh, all I used to illustrate were two wheel, things of two wheels. And I started doing a lot of drawings with uh, BMX riders and Bicycle Magazine starts in probably, I think it was 76 or 77. And I submit my artwork and I get accepted. The publisher of the magazine, a guy named Bob Osborne, who made a magazine called BMX Action, which was one of the best and most popular magazines in the 70s and very formidable to the sport of BMX. Fast forward, my parents get divorced. I am now 18 and I get offered a job to move to Los Angeles. And I do. I, I move in with the publisher of the magazine and I'm the staff artist. I think I made $3.25 an hour. And, uh, but I got to work at a magazine. And really, that was my first real job, you know, first real job professionally. And, you know, if you speak of the best boss ever, I had a, I had a guy that was the publisher, Bob Osborne, who was very instrumental and giving me leadership and some direction because prior to that I was a, I was a kid with talent but no direction and uh, so he he was very helpful to me. So he helped define your your style. He obviously encouraged you since he hired you. Would you say that's where your design sensibility really got its start? Yeah, when working at the magazine, you know. Bob Osborne, or we called him Oz. Oz was tough. He was he was a great guy, and he gave you lots of rope. But he was he was tough as well. And uh, you know, I was pretty fortunate. You know, I worked there at the magazine as the grunt kid in the back of the shop. You know, I did lots of production art. I worked under an art director, and really, my paid education was being there at a magazine. You know, doing ad design, layout, page design, illustrations, kind of whatever was needed in a publication. So that was my kind of formal art and design training. You know, Oz also was a guy that was big on um, kind of self-motivating tapes and things back then. You know, the I think it's L. Ron Hubbard and people like this, you know, Think and Grow Rich, The Power of Positive Thinking. We used to sit around as, as again, I'm 18 years old, and he'd have his staff sit around and we listened to these tapes. And, and you know, a bad word is saying this kind of a brainwashing, but at the same time, it was really, it was a way to think differently. So this guy, 
you know, taught us about, hey, you know, envision your success and, and again, the power of positive thinking. So for me, what he did is he really inspired me and empowered me in a lot of ways. Again, a young guy that had talent, but no direction as a kid growing up. So this was really helpful to me. Well, that's, that's super interesting. And, and you know, listen, mo- motivational speaking and the power of positive thinking has been around forever. You know, everything you see today in that, in that motivational space from, from Zig Ziglar to Tony Robbins, they're essentially all saying the same thing. Don't quit. Have a positive outlook. Get up every day. And if it's do it again, then it's do it again. But you keep marching, which obviously you did. So I'm really interested now. So you, I don't know how long you worked at the magazine. Uh, you'll tell us that in a second. But this blend between the barnstorming tour with BMX freestyle, you know, tricks and flips and that sort of thing with your pals and then dovetail that into that moment and share with us that moment when the Spielberg crew called you. So the transition was I worked at BMX Action Magazine in Torrance. I worked up there for five years. As I became more skilled and established as an artist, I also started developing simple BMX products. And that's kind of where my business started. And the first and most notable thing that I created when I was, again, a teen were these BMX number plates. And they were kind of an essential item that went on the bikes. And that's what started my business. So my business, you know, I kind of outgrew BMX action. And now I was becoming this rebel kid you know, at age probably 19. And, you know, I had my own ideas and my own aspirations and ambitions. And I kind of outgrew BMX action and Oz and I were kind of bumping heads, you know, probably like a father son situation. I still have the utmost respect for him and and him for me, I believe everything I hear anyway. So I move out, I leave BMX action, I start my own little place. I'm selling tens of thousands of number plates, you know, and other little BMX products. And this was before we even made bicycles. So I had an idea. I leave BMX action and I was doing trick riding as freestyle was called back then. It wasn't even called freestyle yet. It was called trick riding. I was doing freestyle. Then I had this idea of doing a summer tour. And really the summer tour was to promote my little my fledgling business, Haru Design. I would follow the summer tour. I traveled all over the U.S. I bought a, I bought a van. I bought a trailer. I had ramps made. I bought a PA system. I made posters. I rallied my sponsors at the time, which were you know new companies like Oakley was a new company. Jim Gennard is just a few years into the brand. Jim, I did art for back in the day, and when he started his business. And I rallied him as a sponsor. Vans was new to BMX and I was one of their first BMX riders. And I had, you know, I had a handful of sponsors that gave me, I asked them for a big sum, I think of like $500 at the time. And basically it was to have their name on my poster to give me that accreditation. And I made posters, I striped the van and tricked it out graphically. And uh, I put together a tour and I think it was six weeks or a couple months or whatever. And uh, I rallied a friend of mine, Bob Morales, a local rider that was, you know, was a good rider. And he became my teammate, my brother. He gets out of high school. He's 16. He now has a license. I need another driver in the van. And I rally my brother and we 
jump in the van and we take off for six weeks traveling and following the BMX circuit. And basically we were the sideshow. I did it all for free. You know, they just gave me the time at the BMX events to put on a demo free of charge. I didn't even charge for it, but the upside was I was selling product at all these events and that covered the, the expense and we were having a blast doing it as well. So, and the crazy thing of innocence of being young, I, there was a guy that was in the industrial park that uh, my little business was in, a guy named Daryl. And Daryl used to stop by my shop and I hired Daryl to be my manager to take the reins of my little business. I threw the keys to him. I jumped in a van and I took off. No background check, just trust of a guy. And he did a great job. And I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but that's what I did. And so the beauty of, of uh, innocence and maybe naivety. <laughs> so, but yeah, the summer tour was a pivotal moment in the sport. It really, you know, I, I use that word. I, it evangelized lots of kids, thousands of kids across the United States and the world. But first in the United States, because this is the first time these kids had ever seen anyone doing tricks like this on bikes, riding ramps. And we went from everywhere from big cities to little podunk country towns. You know, we roll into town, we were a big deal. There was a sign over the main highway and it said, welcome Team Haro. And we were there at the state armory riding for, you know, a thousand locals. And it was a big deal and it was fun. Well, that's how you launch sport. You go on the road, you barnstorm, you you are some version of the world's greatest showman, right? Because you, you're any port in a storm. If they, if they say, hey, come on down, you're, you're there and you do the tricks and you talk the talk and and you gin up the crowd. And, and all of a sudden, that sort of mesmerizing moment of, wow, I did not know you could do that on a bike becomes what we now know will debut as an Olympic sport in four months time. You know, I'm not going to let this go back to that Spielberg moment because that was huge for you. Right. And it was huge for the sport. So the Spielberg moment was it was a lucky moment in time from the standpoint that a I was I was a BMX writer. I was getting notoriety in the magazines. I was getting, you know, press, you know, on my trick riding and my art and things like that. So I think at the time, you know. In the small sport of BMX, I had notoriety and was becoming a rising star, if you will. And somebody, I don't know who and whoever did thank you, but somebody threw my hat into the mix. And when the Spielberg's production company... That would be Amblin, right? I think that was Amblin. Amblin, yeah. They reset. So I came back to my office one day and I had a young girl that worked for me, a high school girl uh, named was Casey. And Casey, uh, you know, had a note on my desk. She said, hey, somebody called about a movie wanted to know if you wanted to be in a movie. And I, I had to looked at the piece of paper and, and um, I said, okay, well, whatever. I didn't think much of it. And then I, I called and they said that they had, his name was Jerem Schwartz. I remember. And uh, you know, I called Jerem and they said they're having a casting call and the casting call was out at Porter ranch where we shot all the stunts in, in the movie E.T. So I'm in Torrance and Porter Ranch is, you know, with LA traffic can be a little bit of a, a jaunt to get there. But I went out there and uh, I met with the production team and it was, we worked with what's called second unit. 
you know, first unit is all the principals and the actors. Second unit is all the stunts. So I worked with the second unit team and I met with a guy named Gene Randall and his crew. Gene Randall did Raiders of the Lost Ark and all the stunts on that film. So, you know, it was an exciting moment again as a, now maybe I'm 20, I'm 20 years old and uh, I uh, show up headshots. They ask you to ride and go down the hill, see if you can ride and do all that stuff. And, you know, they pull me aside and said, Hey kid, we want to work with you. And, and that's where it started, you know? So fast forward, you know, we do our part. I worked a couple of weeks on, on location doing what you see in the film. And there was a bunch of other things that were in the film that got cut and but, you know, they overshoot and then they they boil it down to what they need. But it wasn't until later when the movie came out that I kind of realized that it was kind of a big deal. You know, I went to the movie theater with my sister and, you know, it was uh, it was really cool to see it. My name wasn't in the credit because I was I, you know, I was, a, as they call it, a scab. I wasn't a part of the Screen Actors Guild. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but it's been kind of rectified now. What is it? IBD. What's it called? IMBD. 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 Yeah. Uh, my name is mentioned in there and credited for that. But, you know, I'm very stoked and honored that I got to be in the film and was part of the film, you know, that became this global phenomena. I think what's really cool about E.T. for me is that I can talk to a kid or a grandmother and everybody's seen the film. And everybody remembers that film and everybody knows that part. The impact that that film had on BMX, again, you know, this is the early 80s. That really, really fueled BMX around the world. It got kids all over the world to be engaged into BMX bikes, you know, put it on the big screen. And having a BMX bike and running around with your little brigade of pals was you know, I still hear about it today. I go to these reunions in different parts of the world and guys will tell me, oh, I saw that film and my friend, my mates and I, we used to practice that, that we're in the ET chase. So never underestimate what, you know, what you do and, uh, you know, realize it may have an impact on somebody downstream in good or bad. So fortunately, that was a great experience and it has uh pulls on a lot of heartstrings, especially in the BMX community. Right. Well, that groundswell of global recognition, and to your point, kids and their posse, you know, renegading all over the place on their BMX bikes. I mean, we still see it today. And it's it's credit to you. And obviously, in the film, everyone who's seen it, and if you haven't, see it, because it's, it's not hard to see, that moment where the, the, the kids, the posse, are escaping with E.T., is a really galvanizing and intense moment in the film. Uh, and they did a terrific job of positioning it that way. And you could talk to people who have seen it, grandmothers and kids, to your point, and they'll be able to recall that BMX scene, right? Because it was just positioned yeah. that way in the film. So have you already started designing bikes at that point? We had not come out formally with my first bike. It was... It was, it started on the tour in 81. I had a sponsor that was Torker BMX bikes. And I was thinking that I would like to make a freestyle bike because all the energy at that time was into BMX racing and BMX freestyle, you know, not many people were paying attention to it. So I thought, Hey, I'm going to make the first freestyle BMX bike. The upside is I rallied my sponsor, Torker BMX, who were in Fullerton, small family-owned company, and they partnered with me to build my first bikes. 
And the genesis of my frame design was kind of based off of what I wrote for them. And I made modifications. But the Haro Freestyler was was started with Torker brand. They were my manufacturer. And they they believed in me and they worked with me small quantities to make something. And that's that's how the brand for bicycles started. We didn't do complete bikes at the time. We just did only frame sets, frame, frame and fork. Jim Ford, I hired Jim Ford again. This is probably 1980, 81. I hired Jim Ford. He came from Kryptonics, which was a skateboard company out of Colorado. I meet with Jim. We meet in Los Angeles and standard Bob style over margaritas and tacos and probably more margaritas. And I had a good vibe and feeling about the guy. Again, the innocence of and naivety of who I am at this time. I hired Jim. And he was recommended to me from a buddy of mine that worked at a magazine called Action Now, which was part of skateboarding back in the day. So Jim moves out. He moves his family, his two kids, and he moves out from Colorado and starts working with me. So Jim gave my business structure. You know, I'm your art design creative. And Jim allowed me to do that. And he managed the business. He managed the day-to-day operations. He was organized. He is organized. He organized the company, buying product and shipping product and all of the things that I'm, I don't like to do. I'd rather sit in my art room and create stuff. So Jim allowed me, and it was a good partnership. It was, you know, a good bandmate. And that really, you know, rocketed the business that, you know, he capitalized on things I came up with and, and got them made and, and forecast and work with distributors and, and all of that happened. So early, early eighties, Taiwan is coming online as a manufacturer. Um, we have a mutual friend in the bicycle business is representing a factory out of Taiwan called Enlun, A-N-L-U-N, Enlun. And, you know, Jim puts together a deal with them to be our manufacturer for our BMX bikes. All of a sudden, now we went from making just a frame and fork set out of Fullerton to offering a complete bike. Now we're in the bike business. We're, you know, formally making bicycles now. So again, you know, just little steps along the path and fortuitous hires and meetings, you know, hiring Jim and bringing him on board and trusting in him, he allowed the brand to grow and blossom. And he let me do what I did well, and he did what he does. So that's, that's kind of, that was the beginning of how it became Haro Bikes. Because prior to that, it was just little parts and accessories that we made. Right. But did you have to pull Haro Bikes out of Torker to create your own company? No, I owned it. I, I, I owned the brand. I incorporated, I incorporated the business in 1978. It was my brand. I just partnered with Torker Got to it. be our manufacturer. They were purely our manufacturer. That's, that's what they were. So you and Jim together grow the brand. And are you distributing through the ultimate buyer, West Coast Cycles at the time? Or when did that relationship take hold? We have a small warehouse in Torrance. And we inventory product there and shipped it. And then uh, the plan was, you know, when Jim came on board, part of the attraction was that I wasn't going to stay in Los Angeles. He wasn't interested in being in L.A., nor was I. You know, I'm a San Diego guy, you know, lived here most of my life. And I decided I'm going to move the business down to Carlsbad. So 1981, 82, I buy a building in Carlsbad 
And Carlsbad was the sticks. There wasn't much out there. Two-lane road, Palomar Airport Road. And I had a warehouse that I bought. I bought a 5,000-square-foot warehouse, and I put the business in there. And that was our distribution network. And that's where we distributed the product. So again, as the business grows, Jim Jim's online, and he is networking with other distributors. My brand was very hot at the time. You know, the Haro name was very popular. and we could sell most anything that had the name on it. And it was because of good ideas and good design. It wasn't just because we slapped our name on it. No, those. right, right. And that is that is the core talent you bring to the table and have done for, for 40 years. And I am not only witness to it, but I'm the beneficiary of that. So were you able to bypass formal distribution then and go direct to the retail community? Or by definition, did you have to go through a distributor like West Coast Cycles? At that time, I think we sold, I have to remember, I know that we sold to dealers for sure. And we had distributors that sold the product. I I don't think we did that much retail direct business at that time. It's not like today. We didn't have the access to, to people. Got it. But we had distributors around the States and around the world that bought the product and distributed the product. The West Coast Cycles, I got a call from a guy named Sid Donofsky. And he was the president of West Coast Cycles. It's now probably 86, 87. You know, I get a phone call from Sid from West Coast Cycle. Rest his soul, but he was a a man of few words. He basically called me and introduced himself and said, hey, Bob, this is Sid Donofsky. How are you doing? I said, I'm good, Sid. How are you? He goes, fine. I'm interested in buying your company. His pitch was hard and fast, you know? <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, I, I'm open to, to meet with you. Let's, you know, let's, let's discuss it. At that time, I was also having growing pains with the business. You know, we were still a small business. I mean, we did, we did around a little over $7 million a year in business. You know, I'm 26 years old and, you know, the business was becoming bigger than my skill set And, level of interest too. So the opportunity of teaming up with West Coast Cycle is they are a national organization, several warehouses nationally, 150 salespeople or so. They have uh, Nishiki as one of their brands and they have another brand called Cycle Pro. Haro would become the you know exclusive BMX brand that they offer. They also sell out tens of thousands of hard parts and accessories. So us teaming up with West Coast Cycles gave us the financial and distribution horsepower that we didn't have before. And I had a nice little business, don't get me wrong, but by teaming up with them, you know, we doubled the business in one year. I mean, they got a hold of it and they could buy right, they could forecast, they had the financial wherewithal to to do whatever they needed to do to grow the brand. And uh for me, I had, I'm back in my sweet spot. I just had my design studio. We had a marketing team in my office and that was our deal. We designed products, we marketed them, we advertised them. We did the summer tours. We had all the riders. We were all the window dressing, all the front. We were the tip of the spear of the brand. They were the back end engine that monetized all of our efforts. Well, that's that's the classic entrepreneurial story. You you start it, you get to a point where, mm, you know, not only is the scale now becoming a little bit 
challenging to deal with, but also your interest starts to wane. So you lock, stock, and barrel at some point, sell through to West Coast Cycles, including your name. And interesting for the audience, Haro Bikes is still a very significant brand in the bicycling industry, not just BMX, but other mountain bikes and and road bikes as well. And they're still over in Carlsbad slash Vista, which for all you listeners is North County, San Diego. But now you're clear of the bicycle business per se. They have the name, your name relative to bikes. And that is still the case today. Um, But you go now way deeper into your design shop. You begin to work with motorcycle and motorsports brands. We tick them off at the top of the show, the Yamaha, the Kawasaki's, the Hondas. And that design skill as BMX continues to grow and expand, sort of give us the run up to 2008 Beijing when Nike rings you up and looks for design help on the formal racing garb for the U.S. team in, in Beijing. So let me add this. Let me, I'll, put, I'll put a little segue on that. When I sold my company to West Coast Cycles, I had a five-year contract. When my contract was up, I had two more years in a non-compete. In that two-year non-compete, I couldn't do anything in the bicycle business. And prior to bicycles, I, I used to race motorcycles. So I was, you know, I was into motorcycling. I segued at a trade show into uh, a motocross brand called Thor out of El Cajon. And I started doing freelance design for them. So that fast-tracked me into the motorcycle industry. And that's where post Haro Bikes, 1993, I start my design, my small design agency called Haro Design, because I'm so inventive with names. Um, so I, I do my design business. I start working with Thor. They're acquired by a big company called Parts Unlimited in the motorcycle industry. And pretty soon within the course of probably three years, I'm, I'm now full-fledged agency working with many of the top brands in the motorcycle industry from everything from distribution company like Parts Unlimited to Thor in the motocross space, which makes apparel, to working with Yamaha, Kawasaki, you know, Yamaha, all of these different brands. And then NASCAR kicks in. NASCAR kicks in. I have a friend that works in motorsports. He likes my work. He rallies me. He works at Penske Motorsports and he rallies me. Now, all of a sudden, now I'm, I'm, I'm into the NASCAR scene. So I have both motorcycle brands I'm working with and I have racing brands that I'm working with. So again, my portfolio post-Haro Bikes was deep into motorsports and power sports companies that I was working for, working for and with. And basically took, you know, my design skills that I learned doing my own brand and applied them to the companies that I was working with. But if you back to me being a teenager, I was a kid that raced motorcycles, was deep into moto culture and BMX at the same time. And then just fast forward, that's where I spent a bunch of years here more recently. Right. So a couple of more minutes on this Olympic story, because it's a yep. good one. 2008 with Nike, 2012 in London with Danny Boyle choreographing the closing ceremonies. And then just your perspective on freestyle debuting here this summer in Tokyo. So 2008, you know, for the Olympics, Nike was the official 
kit sponsor for BMX. BMX is going to be in the Olympics. BMX racing is going to be in the Olympics. I get a call in 2007 from a friend of mine, Mark Lumen, and Mark has an agency called Nemo out of Portland. And Mark was a former editor at BMX Action and Freestyling Magazine. So go full circle. He also has an agency that's working with Nike. And then the other thing that happened in 2007, he, well, he calls me and says, hey, would you like to work with Nike on the team kit designs? And of course, yes, you say yes to that. Then the other fortuitous thing that happened is John Martin, my wild Irish friend, was the global brand manager at Nike for Nike 6.0 for the action sports division of Nike. John is a crazy BMX fan being polite. He's a fan of mine and, and what I've done. And so I get rallied to be a designer for Nike and I put together the team kit and other things. And also they use me as a spokesperson. I, I had the good fortune of being part of the team and the effort in messaging. So I can tell you a classic day when they do the launch of for 2008, I'm in Portland, I'm at Nike headquarters and their communication center, which was like a massive conference room with huge monitors and televisions and, you know, UN style. You know, they've got people, dignitaries and media people from around the world to talk about their Olympic effort. And it's everything from track and field and all the various disciplines in, in Olympic sports that Nike participates in. The brand managers would come out and talk about that. I'm on stage with, now it's BMX and action sports turn. I'm on stage with John Martin talking about why BMX is so important and why it's great that it's in the Olympics. So that was a pretty cool moment in my Nike moment, you know, to ride the wave with Nike was pretty incredible, you know, great people, amazing company. That was a big wave to ride. There's a lot more in that, just that story alone, you know, I get shuttled off. I have a little sidebar. I get shuttled off to go with my friend, John. I'm in the commissary. I, I, I want to get a coffee. And John says, we got to hurry. We got to hurry. We, we got a meeting. I go, what? He goes, we got to go meet Mark Parker. Mark Parker. I go, oh, okay. Mark Parker's the president of Nike. And I'm fiddling around in the commissary trying to get a coffee. So we scurry over there. So that was kind of, that was kind of cool to meet. Mark Parker took a few minutes out of his day to meet me and I got to meet him. And as I sat in his office at, at Nike world headquarters, I'm looking around at all the memorabilia from real sports stars that, uh, that were, had uh, sent him jerseys and posters and, or other things like that, you know? Yeah. Well, Mark Parker was the longest running exec at Nike as Phil Knight's right hand yep. forever. I mean, he's no longer there, but um, you know, sort of, he was the Steve Ballmer, the Steve Ballmer to Bill Gates. Mark Parker was that role to Phil Knight. Yeah. Uh, listen, Bob, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to sort of dive into these regular bits. Um, we've got three of them. The favorite mistake you made and the one you learned the most from, your favorite female artist or band, and then the last one, you know, is we do it all the time, words matter. Uh, your favorite word and why. So first up, your favorite mistake. Oh, favorite mistake. Sorry, man. I can't think of it. <laughs> <any. laughs> I've done too. I've done too many. I've done too many. I, I try. Uh, 
Carl, I don't know. I, I know they're there. I, I can just say that I try, I try to learn from my mistakes, but I know that I can't do anything about things that I've done in the past and I just have to look forward. Healthy attitude. Yeah, the best attitude, looking forward, not backward. I appreciate that a lot. Your favorite female artist or band, you're a music guy, you're a composer. Um, so, so this should be good. Well, I'm a child of the 80s. I was an electronic pop guy, you know, synthesizers and all that. So there was a band called Yaz or Yazoo out of England. Vince Clark was the guy that drove it. Alison Moyer was the singer, very sexy, soulful singer mixed with electronic music. And uh, so she would be one of my my favorite singers in, in the female singers. Go, Allison. Haven't heard that one before. That'll be good. Last one here, the pithy one, uh, words matter. Uh, we all know that's what we say, what we don't say, what we do, what we don't do. Those around us, whether they're employees or collaborators or, or, or part of the team in any way, um, it's really important. So your favorite word and why? Um, I would say it's optimism or be optimistic. I believe in just being optimistic. Again, I like to look up, not down. And uh, so I, I like that word. It's a great word. It's, it stems all the way back from, right, your, your positive attitude and a mental frame of mind that is always leaning in, leaning forward and leaning up as opposed to any other attitude. Um, I love that word, optimism. Bob, I can't thank you enough. It's it's gone way too fast. There is a whole lot more here to the Bob Harrow story, but you've been very gracious with your time. Thanks so much for being a part of it. Thanks, Carl. Keep up the good work, and uh, I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.